0: episode of dialogues i'm really excited for you to hear today's conversation i was excited to have it with the philosopher jennifer morton i've followed her work for a while we actually work in a similar space around intergenerational mobility and she she wrote a very interesting book in 2019 called moving up without losing your way the ethical costs of upward mobility and she's one of the uh, few philosophers i think that takes seriously with the costs of upward mobility as well as as well as the the benefits she's um associate professor currently at unc chapel hill but moving to penn in the fall i discovered that during our our conversation and we, we go through what are the costs of upward mobility in terms of friendships community and so on both to the individual and arguably to the community that we leave behind we talk about the role of luck in our lives and in her case a family member falling in love with the right person at the right time setting her on a different trajectory I worry quite a bit about how far we should just leave these choices to the individual, but we do agree that it would be good to make some of the trade-offs people have to make less sharp and reduce the inequalities in those trade-offs and reduce the number of zero-sum games in our society. We talk about her own fears as a Latina immigrant who's a first-generation college student of ticking diversity boxes without necessarily changing institutions And actually spent a lot of time on the narrowness of the institutions from which we draw our elite and her most recent article, The Miseducation of Our Elite, and how affirmative action isn't really helping, in part because the elite can co-opt people and socialize them into elite norms, and in part because we focus on just too narrow a range of institutions, ivy league colleges and so on, in terms of where we draw our elite from. And so we conclude with some thoughts on how we could essentially make for a a better elite. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I hope you do too. Jennifer Morton, welcome to Dialogues.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Richard. I'm, I'm a fan of yours. I enjoyed Dream Hoarders, and I'm really excited to talk about upward mobility and, you know, related topics today.
0: Well, I, I'm a fan of yours too. So this is this is one of the reasons for me to start a podcast is to force people to talk to me and then record it <laughs> and then hope that I hope that other people will will listen too. I've been um, following your work with interest and going to get onto some of the more recent work you've been doing on the miseducation of our elite, which I think is a natural extension of uh, some of the work uh, in in your own book. But let's start by situating you, just for those who don't know. Your story because it's highly relevant to your work. I mean, I've one of my views is that all scholarship is autobiographical in one way or another. It's just whether you realize it or not. So, tell us a bit about your your story because it's fascinating. Your own educational story from Peru and so on, your own identity transformation, if you like.
1: Yeah, I was born in Lima, Peru, uh, in uh, 1979. So I I grew up in the 80s uh, in Peru, which was a very difficult time politically economically uh that was during shining path so terrorism was a constant threat uh also hyperinflation you know um the economic situation was difficult and um my mom was very young when she had me um and at the time anyone that could improve or a lot of people that could try to find ways to immigrate um to Europe or the United States. And so uh, my mom and, and her sister, my aunt, uh, left for Europe at some point. So I grew up mostly with my grandmother. Um, but as it happens, I also um, got to go to uh, one of the most expensive private schools in Lima, the mm-hmm. American School of Lima, which really kind of set me up for, you know, being able to be here today. Uh, in a way. And so I was the first person in my family to go to college. And, you know, at the time when I came to the United States to go to college at Princeton, that, that idea of the first generation college student wasn't what it is today. Mm
0: -hmm. People
1: didn't sort of have that concept. It wasn't uh, an identity on campus. Um, A lot of the research on first generation college student experience hadn't really been done. Um so when I got to Princeton, I identified myself as a as an international student, which was a category, right? Um
0: which which you you were. It's just that's, yes, not, all, exactly. that's not all that's not all you were. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That was a, that was definitely, you know, there was support around that, there was a center. Um, but a lot of the uh international students at a place like Princeton came from uh very privileged backgrounds, right? And so uh, at the time, by the time I went to college, my family was better off, but you know, I had grown up with my working class grandmother who hadn't been to college, uh, had just finished high school. And so, um, uh, my kind of background experience was very different from the experience of a lot of the other international students. So I had to really kind of find my way to a group of friends that, uh, Kind of uh, felt comfortable for me, right? As a kind of first-generation college student, and also uh, an international student, and at that point, really an immigrant. Um, So, so I ended up at Princeton, um, and uh, you know, was already somewhat interested in philosophy. Got even more hooked into philosophy. uh, Ended up going to grad school, and here I am. um,
0: So, where did you go to grad school? Where did you go? Stanford. Okay, so so that's what's one of the things that's interesting about your your journey. Of course, is that you know f- from a obviously a troubled uh, environment uh, of your childhood, but elite K twelve or secondary education, elite undergraduate, elite postgraduate, and you're now teaching at a very elite institution. Although we'll perhaps get back to that in a moment. And so this this you know, so your own journey. Is this sort of intention? I think with some of the work you're doing. And you're very honest about that. You're very reflective about what you can claim uh, in terms of your own experience. And you claim some. You claim some sense of what it means to be a striver and go to a different country and so on. But you're also aware that you're privileged in many ways by your own academic background. And you just said at the beginning of this, you probably wouldn't be here having this conversation if you hadn't had that break, which was basically the result of a romantic relationship, if I understand yeah, correctly. So, yeah, someone, my
1: mom... Uh- My mom married uh, when I was three, uh, an an expat, an American living in Peru. um, And she was married to him for a few years. And he got me into this school. um, And after their uh, relationship broke up, My family knew that this was kind of a golden opportunity. So a lot of the investment they made, you know, my aunt and my mom, when they were working abroad, were sending money back, went to pay for this absolutely expensive school. Um, And so I grew up with that sense that I had to, that this education was sort of like a, a lottery ticket, right? And I had to make something of it because um it was a very rare gift in a way um and my family was working very hard to make sure that I stayed in that school and yeah that was definitely part of my experience and I think you know not everybody shares depending on the background that they have so I went to school with like the children of prime ministers right and the children of like mining tycoons and whatnot and uh I remember we had this teacher uh, who was Peruvian and she kept saying, you know how much the school costs, you know, what this, you know, she would try to remind the class. And I, I was always very aware of that. Um, but some of my classmates just had no, you know, they knew it was expensive, but this was what they expected. I mean, they were from very wealthy families from families that had been wealthy for many generations. And so their sense of their, uh education and what it meant was just different than mine and that also really shaped my experience yes
0: yeah, so it's just perhaps some it's not nobody's fault but you do habituate to your own Culture and what you what you are used to. I mean, I had a my my journey was somewhat less dramatic. But when I I went to Oxford University from from my school, which was a, a very very ordinary public school, I think I was only the second or third from my school to go to either Oxford or, or Cambridge, and it was a slightly idiosyncratic decision even to apply. But I went, and it was a similar experience in the sense that because it's channeling this quite small elite, you suddenly realise that that person's surname is the same as that conglomerate right,
1: exactly. <laughs>
0: and, and this, I remember this guy this guy would get all these valentine's cards and I could never work out why he got so many as me we shared like a, pay, a mail slot because we had the uh-huh. same surname it was R and he had all these and, and then I noticed some of his letters had right honorable on it as well and I realized that he was an aristocrat and he was right. inheriting some period I knew him really well he was actually really nice but but again it's like that's just these moments of realizing that there are different worlds well let's dig in a little bit to some of the costs of these journeys than um, the kind of substance of, of your book um, and the the ethical goods you talk about. Obviously, your book's, what, uh, 2019? I guess a couple of years mm-hmm. ago now. So um, I'm sort of playing catch up a little bit uh, in terms of you talking about this. But you talk about ethical goods that are not easily replaced. I'm, I'm actually quoting from your work here now. You say, the weakening or loss of relationships with family and friends and ties to one's community are not easily compensated for by making new relationships or entering new communities, and we should be reflective about what's being valued uh, here. And so just explain a little bit about how what you mean by these, why you think they're kind of so important, and I guess more importantly, why they're lost, why, why they're necessarily lost or usually typically yeah. lost as a result of being what you call a striver, being upwardly mobile.
1: Good. Um, so the way I think about these ethical goods is uh, – in line with a a tradition and philosophy of thinking about ethics as what makes for a flourishing life. And I think for most of us, a really important component of a flourishing life are these relationships that we have with family, with uh, friends, with our communities, you know, our senses, our sense of identity is very tied up um, with these relationships. And what I argue in the book is that there's often tension For strivers, so I call strivers those first-generation or low-income students that are trying to, uh, you know, move up the socioeconomic ladder through education, that there is often tension between staying connected to family, to community, uh, to one's neighborhood, maybe one's country, and striving for these, you know, educational goods, career opportunities that often are happening somewhere else, right, in other communities, Um, in other places, maybe in other countries, and that there's often a tension there. Now, this tension isn't the same for everyone. So, you know, as we talked about earlier, I'm privileged in in many respects. And uh, one of the ways in which I was privileged was that my family, my aunt and my mom, by the time I was going to college, were much better off economically. And so, for example, I didn't have the burden of having to uh, work to pay for, um, my family's care, my sister going to school or, you know, all of the many other things that I've seen my students have to do where they have to support their families financially. Um, I wasn't expected to be, uh, you know, sending money back as soon as I moved to, uh, the United States, which was true of my, my mom and my aunt, as soon as they left, they were expected to be sending money back to support me and my grandmother. Uh, so, so I, you know, I had that privilege, but if other students don't, then they're expected and not just expected, they want to support their families, right? They want to be there and, and help when their family, you know, is suffering financially, or maybe they don't have childcare, they don't have elder care, um, and they want to be there for their families. And, but that takes time and energy away from, you know, getting their education and and uh, maybe pursuing like a, a career path towards like a you know white collar job, um, and so there is this kind of tension. And, and and for the book, I interviewed people who'd gone through yeah. this sort of process of striving, and 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 you know you see different degrees in terms of that tension. Some people felt it very keenly. Uh, for some people. It's not that they lost their relationship to their family and friends or to their community, but that it weakened. Um and and so you see kind of a, a, a range of uh cases, but I think it is this common feature that you feel this tension between where you come from and feeling connected to that space and and being kind of a full participant in that community and entering these new communities where you find all these opportunities, um, but but that but that take away from you being kind of fully engaged with your home community.
0: Yeah, you talk about you use code switching, which is typically used in in, in terms of race, but I you I uh, think you can apply it in terms of class as well. I think to some extent, we probably all all of all of us who've been up Woodley Mobile to see some extent engage in that a little bit. We speak differently, we may act differently uh, when we go to kind of our home communities uh, and so on, but. I guess my my question for you is well let's uh, let me make try and make a further distinction first is that there's there's sort of the immediate trade-offs like while you're studying so there's the difference in the experience between and you, you know we all if you teach students at different socioeconomic levels as you have you see this all the time the the difference between the external stresses right are they are they spending their evenings drinking and hanging out with their buddies or playing lacrosse, or are they taking their grandmother uh, to the hospital and caring for that? So we all kind of see that. That's the immediate trade-off. But in some ways, the longer-term trade-off, which is this sort of distance that you talk about, I think is in some ways the more ethically important because it's it's the ethical price you pay for upward mobility. But I guess my question is, isn't that always the case? I mean, Mm -hmm. life is full of regret. And so I think about the regrets, the regrets I might have as a result of having taken the journey that I have, which have had costs for sure. And they've had benefits. But then I look at the people who made a different choice. Let's say I decided not to go to Oxford, decided not to be so upwardly mobile, decided to stay in my hometown. I think I'd regret that. And I think I'd regret it more. um, Because I am me. Now, doesn't mean that the friends I had who made that choice that they, they regret it. They they might, but to some extent, we always regret the path not taken. And so I guess what I'm wondering is to some extent, isn't this just life?
1: Right. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And something I've been thinking about a lot, you, you know, even after I I kind of give an answer in the book, but I but I f don't find it completely satisfying. And I think Well, let me tell you the answer given the book. I think that there are some kind of trade-offs that can be very directly tied to background structures Mm -hmm. of inequality and injustice, and that that's what makes them different, right? And that there is a way in which we as a society have decided to organize things in such a way that some people have to make these trade-offs and others don't have to make make them in the same way, right? And so there's a kind of this uh, unequal burden.
0: there's an inequality in the trade trade-off, and reducing inequality in trade-offs, I think, is a is a is a really kind of worthy goal because you're quite right. Some people ha- some people have sharper trade-offs than others.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, the other kind of important bit too is the effect that these kind of trade-offs have, not just on the striver, but on their family or their community, right? And so. You know, I see this a lot now. Teaching in North Carolina, where a lot of the first generation students that we have here are from rural communities, right? So before I came to UNC, I was teaching in New York City, and a lot of our strivers were uh, immigrant kids from the city, and and they were still living at home and going to school, and that was a whole different kind of experience of the of, of college. Um, Some of my first-generation students here come from rural parts of North Carolina, and what they tell me is that their families and their communities know that if they go to Carolina, that means they're, in effect, leaving their community, right? There's no way they're coming back. Um, They might come back for a visit, but they're not going to be a part of the community in the same way that they were up to that point. And that's the kind of trade-off that I think only some people have to make right if you grow up in in a more affluent middle-class family and what your parents went to college and and their friends went to college you might move away you might choose to move away but there isn't this sense that you must leave to access certain kinds of educational opportunities or career opportunities whereas um, the sense for uh, students who are growing up in uh, predominantly low-income communities is that what it means to go to college really is to put this big distance between them and their home community and probably forever. Um, and and that, I think, has an effect on the student themselves, right, in terms of how they think about their path, but also on the families and the communities who uh, know that, like they're talented, maybe ambitious children or young people in their community. The the path forward for them is a path out, right, and not
0: yeah in the community. You sort of if you have an unequal society and it's geographically unequal, and you have certain centres of academic learning that are more selective, perhaps of higher quality than others, then what you've just described is a sort of inevitable consequence of those inequalities and I think that obviously and you argue strongly for this that we can reduce those inequalities and I, I agree um, and I think we'll get on to I want to get on to where we take our elite from in a moment because there's a bit of a vicious circle here you have to go to the flagship or the Ivy League because that's the because that's the bottleneck uh, I don't if you know do you know Joe Fishkin's work it's yeah yeah
1: yeah, exactly so interesting. and, and like, I think it's not just right the educational uh, um, institution, though, that's an important bit of it. But it's also where the jobs are, right? So if you get a computer science degree from Carolina, and then you're thinking, like, where will I go? Uh, You're probably not going to go out to rural North Carolina for your job. And so, um, you know, we, we could envision a system in which, yes, you go away to college, but that's like a temporary thing, right? And then you come back to your community where there's a job there for you that uh, makes use of your education and helps you lead to your community thriving, and but that's not the situation in many uh, rural communities or low-income communities.
0: It's not. It's no. It's not even an option. But I think about um, some of my own friends, high school friends I'm talking about now, who did go away to university, and sometimes they even pursued a career in London for a while. But then when they had children themselves they wanted they, they went back to the town that I grew up in which is in peterborough just just north of London and I think that's a bit of a trend sometimes people might move later but it does require at least for the labor market there to be sufficiently developed to be able to make something of your skills right you probably face some trade-offs but that example of you know some so, of my friends going back and me not doing it. It does come back to this question of choice and autonomy. And Mm -hmm. I worry a little bit that your analysis doesn't put quite enough emphasis on autonomy. Uh, And on, if you like, the site where these trade-offs are made is the site of the individual. And so, of course, there may be part of me that regrets Having lost some of the sense of community from being in my hometown, but I trade that off against all the other opportunities I've I've had, and I choose I choose one bundle of ethical goods over another, right? Like, right. To say, and other friends who could, and, and 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 here's the thing: I look at them, and I and I and I think this is a problem with the discourse around social mobility generally. And basically, what I say is, why can't you be more like me? And mm-hmm. I th- and I think that's the summary of social mobility discourse is very often a version of why aren't you more like me? Because it's either dominated by people who are already uh, affluent and successful, or who like you and I have become, who've moved up. And I wasn't raised poor or anything. Don't don't misunderstand me. And so we sort of look down, both literally and metaphorically, at the people who aren't doing that, who could do that, but- and I'm almost like, what's wrong with you? And. And the answer is, what's nothing wrong with me. It's just I have a different bundle of goods. Ethical, mm-hmm. I, I'm choosing a different bundle of ethical goods, and I'm valuing being where I grew up more strongly than you are. And I, to, to which a, a good liberal might just say, "Great, that's the great thing about liberal societies: is that individuals right. can choose can choose different versions of the ethical goods and have different regrets as a result. So what are we complaining about?
1: Yeah, good. So I think there is kind of a deeper. Uh, point here. And and in a way, you know, you're nicely articulating that there is this moment of choice you're, you know, have these bundles of goods that are competing against each other. One hope that I had in writing the book was to uh, articulate why it's reasonable not to choose the upward mobility bundle, right? That there are genuinely valuable good things you're choosing, uh, and choosing this other bundle of goods, you're not making a mistake, uh, right? It's it's not some sort of like rational deficit that all of a sudden you decide you don't want to pursue this path of higher education. I want to stay in your community. Um The problem, of course, is that this often consigns you, in particular in places like the United States, right, to uh, less access to good education for your children, to Uh, like a clean environment to, uh, you know, good jobs. So I think that the trade-off that people face ends up being between um, remaining connected to family and friends and community and seeing those as really valuable, but that comes with, right? uh, Trading off things that I think nobody should have to trade off to be connected to their family, friends and community and, and, and you know appreciating those goods, valuing them in the right way and so on. Um, and you know, the more kind of perhaps underlying radical thought here is that a lot of us are being forced to make those choices. And what happens is thats that some of us who are in like these more affluent, kind of you know, upper middle class circles, is that we're kind of trained in a way and, and encouraged to not value those attachments quite as strongly so that we are mobile and are willing to pick up, as I will in next week. You can see like the moving boxes behind me uh, to move to Philly. And you know, because oh, I didn't know about- that.
0: Are, are you moving oh, to Philly? Yeah. Why?
1: Yeah, I'm moving to the University of Pennsylvania.
0: You, I thought you just didn't you just move <laughs> to UNC.
1: It's complicated, but um, yeah, exactly. Right. Like we, we get um, a a kind of uh, encouraged to be mobile and to not form too deep of attachments in order to be able to move around. And, and I think we, you know, hold up people who prioritize Uh career and their career advancement and don't Think too hard about what it is they're sacrificing in terms of like the attachments to place, to community, to neighborhood, right, to family that they might be.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, making I, for that. So I like. I mean, I like that rebalancing, and it's something that I've thought about a bit myself too. You know, I'm, I'm aware that in some of my own work, it is a kind of "what's wrong with you" mentality. Actually, I, I, I don't know if I can find the study, but it, this would be of interest to you. I don't think you referenced this work. There was a study looking at comparing white and Latino students in Texas somewhere and which ones went away to a selective college, a highly selective college, who would have meant moving away. And the study conditional on... Your SAT, GPA, all the measures they could have, they still find this big gap. And they could explain all of the gap by the answer to one question in the survey, which they all received, which is how important is it to you for you to be near family? Wow. And it's exactly what you've been talking about, which is a uh, right. and and so uh, as a sort of social mobility wonk, I look at that and I think, is that a problem? Right. Uh and and you think, well. Yes, because what it means is that the Latino kids who are just as qualified as the white kids aren't getting as "quotes" good an education. they probably still they went to the local state university or something, so probably still got a very good educator. But but there's going to be a white Hispanic gap down the line. Yeah. On the other hand, so like they've told me why they're not doing it which is that they want to be near their family so then the next question is like so the problem is the familism the culture of familism in Lat- in latino communities and so what mm-hmm. we need to do is go in there and st- break that up and stop them caring about family so much because they're ruining my quintile transition right. matrices <laughs> and it's it's like really interesting moments where it's like uh, actually and my view is that's not a problem so long as and here's, here's my caveat, so long as I feel reasonably sure that the decisions being made by those young people are with some decent awareness of the costs and benefits, right? They're not doing, mm-hmm. it, they're not doing it blindly. And so if they say, yeah, I could have gone away to UNC or UPenn, um, but I, I, I'd rather be near mom and dad. And I, and I realize that that may cost me you know, something. Right. I'm like, I'm like, and vice versa if I do decide to go, I realize that it might dam- you know cost me something in terms of my family relationship.
1: Yeah, but I think once we realize as we were talking about just a minute ago, what gets attached to that choice to stay in other domains of their lives, right like health and education and career disparities, um, you know their earning potential and so on, then I think we need to step back as a society and think, how much do we value <laughs> right? family and, and community and the, you know, the associational life, uh, if, if what we in fact have done is set up um, our economy in such a way that the incentives are structured to make those bonds weaker at, you know, if we're interested in, in pursuing like career opportunities or educational opportunities or these other goods. Um, that lead to the productive economy. And I think that's the part that for me is troubling. And it might be that I come from this kind of like, you know, culture in which family and attachment is really important. But one thing I've noticed is actually, you know, I'm talking to my students here who come from rural North Carolina, is that there are many parts in the U.S. of like white, you know, Americans who have been here for a while, who are not immigrants, who uh, also share this attachment and valuing of, you know, the associational life, like uh, these relationships and family relationships and community relationships, and who are not happy about having to trade them off for um, economic opportunities. And so I think that tension is pretty deep, and I don't think we really have a way of Uh, figuring out what the, like we, you know, the Mm. the things that we say don't kind of really hit the nail on the head in terms of what values are at stake. Um, And the fact that we often um, uh, set up the incentive structures so as to devalue or demean Mm. people's attachment to, you know, their communities and the places in which they grow up and the people with whom they grow up.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you made the point that that's true for lots of communities of different, you know, different colors and creeds and so on across the U.S. In fact, very often immigrants, uh, it's true, I think immigrants are more geographically mobile than non-immigrants are in the U.S. Um, uh, And uh, and so I think that's an important caveat. I think you've helped me clarify my view on this a bit, which is in an ideal world, I think you could take this view, which is the liberal view. Which is yes, there are competing goods, and we trust you know. And what we do is we trust individuals to to choose their bundle of goods. And what you're saying is that the way that the political economy is structured is that it makes the cost of certain choices too high. And so, whilst it's fine for me to say, well, look, my friends who want to stay in the hometown and have a you know they they put more weight on associational goods or being near family than I do. It sounds like you do. Um, okay. Great. So we can jet around, and I live in a different country now to where you know, I grew up and I have an American wife. And so it's, I, I, I'm thousands of miles away, as you you are. But I have other friends that have chosen. Great. But well, I think what, what you're pointing to is we have to be careful not to embed a view of the weighting of those goods into our political economy in such a way that it does give preferential treatment effectively to, to choose a type A Jen and Richard, right. right? Yeah. Rather than choose no, a that way.
1: That's uh, a really excellent way of, of articulating it. And, you know, we can think of comparison. So I have family in Norway uh, and um, my aunt lives in a somewhat small town in the southern coast of Norway. Um You know, a town that has like farming and uh, lots of people there have lived there for many, many, many generations. So she married a Norwegian man, my uncle, and he's extremely wealthy. Actually, he's from an extremely wealthy family. Um, They help pay for my education. Um, So I'm I'm very thankful to them. But um, as a kid, I would go visit them. And what was striking to me is that, well, one, there's just more socioeconomic integration uh, at school and in their social life, right? Mm-hmm. So my cousins have a lot of money; they could go anywhere, right? They at least one of them attend, you know, they attend the like local public school. And his friends are like plumbers, and you know, are going to go into construction work. And and so th- it's just the diversity um in terms of the people that he's interacting with is remarkable. Um, not racial diversity, obviously, because this is Norway. No way. No way. Um, yeah. But um, but also that lots of smart, you know, well-educated young Norwegians decide at some point that they want to stay in their community and they'll take a job that maybe doesn't pay a ton, but they all the jobs pay well enough that you could have a reasonable life Mm -hmm. and enjoy having vacation and all that healthcare and all that stuff because they are so tied to this community, right? And so some of them might leave and go to Oslo um, because, you know, they're ambitious in that way. But lots of people stay and they are very proud of that kind of intergenerational, uh, those intergenerational connections they have, right? So my uncle will, you know, somebody will come over and he's like, his grandfather and my grandfather used to run through the woods and do this and that. And, you know, and they just have this, history that they are very proud of and those bonds are so important to them and and part of it i think is the economic safety net right
0: yeah they, they can afford they can af- they can afford it in that sense just i just want to clarify is this, yeah. a, this is a different wealthy guy to, to, no this to, is my this is
1: with. my uncle yeah okay. yeah
0: for a, for a moment then i thought you had sort of that. Uh, i was going to say that your family is very good at finding and marrying wealth but okay it's the same wealth <laughs> um but i agree i think it's I think I, what motivates I think a lot of your work and some of my work too now is lowering the stakes effectively is to just the stakes are just too high. And, and it's one of the big arguments, I think for universal, very universal provision of one kind or another, which is, if you just feel like everything's on the line and it's a zero sum game then every it just it matters too much in other words it's just you have to it's one of the some that motivates my work is i think the reason the upper middle class are so very often so sort of paranoid in their obsessive behavior around how their kids are going to do and which college they get to and so on is because they really don't want them to fall because it look, doesn't look right. great down there you know it doesn't look the lower down the rung it doesn't look great whereas if it looked okay down there then maybe they'd relax a little bit (laughs) maybe they maybe the zero-sum games around some of these bottlenecks would reduce and so i think there's a vicious circle at work here which is the more the more unequal we are the higher the stakes the more expensive the the trade-offs but this issue about community maybe you've raised it i didn't i didn't see norway coming so that was a great addition to your global perspective but this issue about damaging the communities that are left behind you know, you talk about the talented people who leave, and and that's interesting to me too, because I I, I fear there that the danger sometimes is that it could have quite a chilling effect on individuals. It's almost like some of them feel guilt, some of them feel guilty enough uh, about leaving their community. And I think about this even in my own sort of family context, and so to some extent, there's a danger maybe kind of piling onto that and saying, you see, you know, you've left them behind; they're going to struggle. And so, take a, a made-up example. I, I'm an Amish young woman, and I decide I want to break away from the Amish community, go to university, and live in New York, etc. And that's a big loss to the Amish community, right? But she doesn't want she doesn't she doesn't want the views about gender. She doesn't want a farm. She doesn't want it. She doesn't want to be Amish, right? Now, the Amish community is weakened by her decision to go to college in New York, but it's not clear to me how much weight I should put on that loss as opposed to her autonomy and her right to choose her own good life
1: yeah and i think typically the debate over this issue of community and autonomy you know in in traditional political philosophy has been to see it through cases like that of the amish right and 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 to see and to see that the individual's autonomy you know if you're a good liberal egalitarian can't come at the expense of this community's claim that it's a loss to them and i think that's right i think what's interesting about the cases of strivers and the people that I've been thinking about, so, you know, uh, Latinx, but also uh, African Americans and immigrant communities in the United States, is that in many of those cases, there isn't this sort of, like, claim even on the part of families, right, that that um, you shouldn't leave or anything like that. Like, many of these parents want to see their children do well right they want Mm. to see their children succeed educationally Um, and many members of the community want to see like the talented young people in their midst uh, do well educationally and so for them like they might agree that the trade-off makes sense right they might say like yes great you like went and did something of yourself and you're leading a great life and we're all so proud of you but that doesn't quite i think um, erase the fact that there was this loss and that the loss is to some extent a consequence of how we've arranged our economy and our the distribution of opportunities in this country. And so it's, you know, in the traditional case of the Amish, you have like this conception of a good life that is in tension with uh, kind of Western democratic, you know, autonomy-centric values. And there is a clash of like, kind of conceptions of the good, as we would say in political philosophy. I think in the case of like, you know, the first generation college student who's to, who, who wants to go to university and, and their families who want to support them, there isn't really a clash. And con- there's a clash, but the clash is contingent, right? It's just a clash as a mm-hmm. result of the ways in which we've organized opportunities, not a clash that is inherent to, right? Like being cool. the sort of person that, loves being a part of a community and feeling connected to others and having a good job and being able to afford to pay for healthcare and, uh, you know, send your children to a good school. Those things should go together. We think in yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, a yes, society
1: like ours. And for some people they can't go together. And I think that's the part that is um, that is kind of tricky about these cases.
0: Yeah. So we were trying to broaden the range of bundles that people can mm-hmm. kind of put together effectively you know i'm thinking about sense capability sets a little bit here it's almost like right. you know think about the different capab- bundles you could put together and what 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 hear you saying is actually if we worked harder at this we could actually expand the number of bundles that were available to people and make the trade-off less sharp and i think you you argue quite strongly that one way to do that is to reduce educational inequality so maybe you know a better example than the Amish maybe our family and godkids and so on in baltimore city and all the kids who come through Baltimore City schools who are advised by anyone who knows the system say, don't go to Baltimore City Community College, get out, go somewhere else, because the graduation right. rate is, you know, even by U.S. community, very, very low. It's just a very weak college, no criticism of them. It's a very weird history, but it's like, you got, You should go. Um, and you think, well, why should you have to? Let's say you want to go to community college. That's the route that's mm-hmm. best for you. And you grew up in Baltimore City and you'd like to stay in Baltimore City. And I can think of lots of family, members of our family who would like to do that. Why should I have to leave to get a decent community college education? And and so that's maybe a kind of better example of how we could like, let's make Baltimore City Community College an amazing community college. Maybe Hopkins. Right, exactly. it. And then the people I know who make that trip say, great, I can still near, be near my, live with my grandmother and look after her and go to a great community college and so I, I I buy all of that I then think the question is of course how uh, one one does that I want to move on a bit to this work you've done around complicity mm-hmm. uh, and the the place that we all uh have in this sort of system um and you've just described your own moves actually um yeah and it's this very interesting it, essentially I I hope I don't butcher the argument but i think one of your worries is that the upwardly mobile the strivers etc get co-opted one way or another by the very elite systems they've been broken into in ways that mean that they're not as powerful as they could be in opening up those systems to other people so it's not quite we pull the ladder up behind us but it's but it's very much along that Uh, along that line isn't it and so talk a bit more about how you wrote this very good article which we'll link to around complicity in the academy reflecting on your own experience can you talk a bit more about and how complicit you feel like you are uh, in it and i am and so on and what we can do about it
1: yeah um good so there is this tension i think um that anyone who's a striver and is very cognizant of the ways in which these unjust structures have impacted our paths. And I think this is many, many strivers, right? Like you you, you realize how lucky you were to end up in this path and how easily things could have been derailed and you ended up in a different path. That um, as you succeed, there's a lot of pressure within institutions to um, not rock the boat, right? Like to, to sort of to go along, right? And And I think this is true for all of us. Right. This is kind of the nature of institutions and uh, the nature of how they work is that they have certain norms. Right. And that uh, you play a role within this institution and, and, you know, doing your role well is how you will get rewarded and how you will move up. Um, And so um, pushing against these norms, against how the institution um, is set up is always potentially going to derail you, right? And that's the, and and if you're someone who comes from um, an economically disadvantaged background, that derailment can feel very uh, um, dangerous, right? Because you think, and you know, this goes back to the point you were making earlier, this kind of zero sum game, you feel like I don't have something to fall back on if, if this goes badly, right? And if I invested my life in this educational, you know, uh, career or whatever other career I have. Um, and um, I might not feel like I have a lot of alternatives except doing this well, but doing this well sometimes involves going along and being complicit in norms that mm-hmm. you recognize are meant to keep some people out um, and that are uh, exclusionary and benefit people who come from more privileged backgrounds and and the rest of it. And so, um, it becomes this really tough line to walk where you're trying to, at the same time, you know, change the system, you know, within the bounds of what you can do and push back on um, some of those pressures. And at the same time you earned this position and you don't want to lose it. Right. You, you earned your place and um, you want to be able to keep doing your job. So, you know, what I talk about in the article, which, Um, I've seen a lot of in the academy is people who come from underrepresented backgrounds and are um, on the tenure track, or maybe they're a postdoc or a grad student. So they're in these vulnerable positions within the academy, right? They don't have a tenure. um, They might not be paid very well. And then um, a lot hangs on them succeeding. And who gets to decide what success looks like is the senior people in their department, like the senior people in university administration, the people who are refereeing papers through the peer review process, right? And uh, generally, those people tend to be fairly conservative about the institution, not conservative in the capital C, but in the little C way, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, this system has worked well for them. <laughs> they, you know, they're happy for the system to continue as it is. Um, and... And what ends up happening is that there's this tension between wanting to push back on how the system is set up because you see that it's not serving, say, your students well or other people like you well, um, but at the same time wanting to do well by the standards uh, of the institution. And and, and, and Mm
0: -hmm. I
1: think it's this real tension. And yeah, for me it's been something I've been thinking about a lot throughout my career. And, uh, you know, I I try to kind of push the boundaries of my role while keeping my role. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think there is there is little that individuals can do often, right? So, um, you know, maybe this goes back to some of the stuff that you talk about in your book, Dream Hoarders. The, the parent who's thinking like, Do I send, you know, do I gain the system to get my kid into the good public school or send them to private school, uh, knows that they're feeding into a system that is unjust, that contributes to um, educational inequality. At the same time, their one kid going to this or that school is unlikely to really change anything, right? And so you end up feeling kind of caught in between these two pressures um and I think many of us experience this you know whether it's in your job or in where you send your kid to school or what neighborhood you decide to live in where you feel like there isn't really a very good choice either way and 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 you feel kind Mm -hmm. of complicit either way perhaps
0: well unless you're willing to I think take extraordinary lengths, uh, sacrificial lengths, I think. Um, I mean, I, I remember giving a talk once and a, a woman about my book, and this woman said that she had deliberately, she was a professional woman, pretty affluent. She'd deliberately chosen to live near the lowest performing school in Washington, D.C., um, huh. Predominantly African American, because she said, That's what I have to do. That's my bit. And she was effectively accusing me of being a hypocrite because although my kids are at public high school, it's in a, it, well, they're not anymore, but it was in a, an affluent suburb. Um, you know, and then I can accuse my friends who've paid for their kids to go to private school of being hypocrites. And, you know, we can, the, the finger pointing can go on forever. And yeah. I said to her, I said, Look, well, good for you. But on the other hand, actually, I think there's a line here, which is starting to treat your own children as social policy interventions. Yep. For me, it's a bit of a step too far. Now, that's you know, there's a there's it's not just a binary between you're either fully complicit in the system, you know, or exactly. you're you know, or you're an angel. There's a sort of series of trade-offs. We're back to trade-offs that you make along the way. And in my work, it's just been I think similar to yours is to try and make the trade-offs more explicit and have people argue for them. But I think it's this question about norms and trying to create norms around these paths. I mean, your own work, you write in your book, or you. You were writing about City College, New York, and I love the CUNY system. It obviously does very well on all the social mobility metrics from Chetty and others that you cite. But your own distance is, is – I'm pushing you on this a little bit, but is growing, right? So I did, <laughs> I, did I did the Chetty lookup. I, I actually gave a talk at UNC Chapel Hill recently, so I had these numbers. Oh. Hand. I, I'll find them for Pen. But at City College, New York, the median household income a student was $40,000. of them came from the top 20% and 23% came from the bottom 20% of the income distribution. UNC Chapel Hill median is $135,000 a year. Mm -hmm. 60% of the students come from the top 20%, 4% from the bottom 20%. So I was going to push you a little bit on how it felt to have made that journey (laughs)
1: yeah
0: and and now now i can ask you about your next step but yeah i haven't haven't googled the numbers on pen but i I can assure you they won't yes they won't be better than chapel hill
1: no they will not um yes it's been it's been uh a really interesting experience thinking through these choices you know and to some extent some of the choices end up being about you know family and you know what's I mean, for my husband and like all all of these other mm. factors. I um, you know, one trade-off that I think I was making was in effect, getting some recognition and engagement with my work, uh, which is much easier to do when you're at a r one university than at uh, you know a research intensive but still like a public college that doesn't quite have the same standing. And I think that was one factor that went into it. Another, and, and, you know, alluding back to the discussion of, like, where to send your kids to school is about where you draw the line around uh, work conditions, right? And so there was a lot about CUNY and teaching at CUNY that I loved. I love the students. I still miss teaching those students. There's nothing like being in a classroom with people that have, like, kids and jobs and also young 18 year olds who are idealistic and, you know, and having those two sets of students talk to each other and come at things from such different perspectives. I think we really miss out on that in many of the kind of highly selective universities and college. And in fact, there's like very little diversity and experiences in the classroom Um, in terms of even just like, age, right? A lived experience and so on. So I I miss that terribly. Um and also in, in an environment in which there are more people of color and there are more people who are first generation and you know all of that. But we got we got pushed at CUNY and this happens all over the country obviously to have bigger and bigger classes, uh you know, kind of worse working conditions Trying to increase the teaching load. And at some point, you feel like you're not teaching as well as you could when you have, you know, I don't know, 120 students in a semester. And somebody says, you're supposed to teach these students how to write an essay. Like, that's.
0: Yeah. You know, so you, hit, that, so you, you hit resource constraints. And, I, you know, I should yeah, say Yeah, you hit like, resource
1: constraints. I think also for me, you know, some of my work has been. as you mentioned earlier about the elite and how we educate the elite. Mm. And I was, I've gotten a lot from being at different sorts of educational institutions. Um, You know, I, I'm kind of an observer (laughs) of how these institutions work. And that's where a lot of the creative energy for my work comes from. So I really uh, was excited about coming to Chapel Hill in part because the first generation students here look different than the first generation mm-hmm. students at CUNY, and now our students from rural communities, and that's a you know a totally different set of students uh, with different concerns uh, who were coming at college uh, you know in a different way um, than my students in New York City. So I was excited about that, but it is hard. I know that I am you know in a way choosing making choices that are responding to incentives in the system that reward, you know, research expertise and so on, at the expense of having people with this research expertise be in front of the classroom of majority low income, you know, majority first gen students and majority students of color. It's very hard to find a place where you can get both of these things together like research support and you're teaching this population of students and so yeah it's been hard thinking about those trade-offs yeah and definitely i have all sorts of complicated feelings sure. about well
0: i i i think if we don't if we're not experiencing some cognitive dissonance we're not doing our work properly in this yeah in this space i actually gave a talk about my book i was sort of ranting about the segregation in higher education in the US and someone looked at my bio and at the time I was teaching part-time at Georgetown as well as being uh, at, the Br- at Brookings institution incredibly right. elite institution and they just they, they came up to the microphone there because why do you teach at Georgetown and I had this moment of thinking oh my god and so I, ne- I never have since and I'm sure saying this out loud means I never will again and in fact Brookings instead set up a lecture series with UDC which is an H- Oh, Europe, I just Europa. gave
1: a talk at UDC. Which yeah. So, so it, was, yeah. But it was.
0: It was again. It was this moment of like, and it was, I hadn't even thought about it. I'd done it because Brookings right. relationship with Georgetown, it's easy, and you know, it's like the equivalent of the Twitter blue check. It's like you just and and that's I was like, how many credentials do I actually need before I feel right. like I feel like yeah. I, I'm okay? This is a constant up, yeah, the, the credential inflation. It's just this like uh, Brookings. So George-
1: the. Thing I will say that <laughs> makes me feel slightly better is that yeah, uh, I
0: want you to feel better, right?
1: My my plan in moving to Penn is, you know, another interest of mine. At and you share this interest is in the inequality between institutions of higher education, right? Not just like students, but how many resources some institutions, right, the Georgetown's johnson Penn's, amass at the expense of UDC and. Uh, City College of New York. Um, and so part of my plan for going to Penn and part of you know what I negotiated is um, I want to start a, a kind of partnership with a community college. And I think there's a lot to be gained. I mean, I'm generally skeptical of win-win situations, but I think this might be genuinely a case in which Penn students could get a lot from being an intellectual community with community college students and vice versa, and I and I think there's just a lot of knowledge in community colleges, for example, about how to teach and how to teach well and how to teach a diverse, um, a, you know, a diverse group of students. And I know from my experience, you know, being at Stanford for my PhD that students at very elite institutions do not get very good training in how to teach and they don't get very good training in how to teach students who don't come from similarly elite backgrounds and yet those students end up getting jobs in non-elite colleges and universities and then they get there and they're not entirely sure how to teach these students whereas in community colleges in some flagship public universities, you have people who are amazing teachers. And I know this from being at CUNY and who know how to teach uh, that population of students really well. And I think there's a lot of knowledge that could be gained there, you know, for mm-hmm. Penn students. And and I think there is a lot to be gained in terms of resource sharing, you know, kind of picturing like having invited lectures where the audience is both students from a community college and students from Penn. So my idea is to sort of come up with a project uh, and, you know, a lot of it requires finding the right partners in which there is this kind of sharing of knowledge and resources around philosophy, you know, an intellectual topic, building intellectual community, because I think these like incredibly well-resourced institutions, the way they're dealing with the critiques uh, leveled at them is focusing on, say, admitting a slightly, slightly more first-generation college students or low-income students, and giving them more resources, right and. That's such a tiny fraction, yes.
0: well, it's, you know, of I mean, um, the
1: students a, that need it, like it, these educational resources.
0: I completely agree. It's a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction. I mean, the, the proportion of uh, U.S. population that went to Ivy League is 0.2 or something. Um, and so you, you, at some point you are, all important though it is, dancing on the head of a pin. And there, I agree also there's an amateurishness to the teaching professional at those really elite institutions they're really there for the research and then you're just supposed to somehow magically pick up the ability to teach which is why there's so much horrific teaching that people are spending <laughs> a fortune on in those places but that's a nice way into the last thing i want to touch on was this provocative new piece you've got on the miseducation got, i think it's called the miseducation of our elite and i think it's directly relevant to what you were just discussing which is the problem of drawing our elite from such a narrow range of institutions. And then because we do that, having a, a model of affirmative action, which presumes that by ticking certain boxes, you're getting the representation. Of different groups right. um but you're missing something very important so i'm just going to i'm going to read a, a sentence a couple of sentences from the paper about the supreme court i think is is a nice illustration you say a supreme court that is composed entirely of ivy league graduates is not as representative as it could be even if it numbers among its ranks an african-american man a latina woman and a jewish woman this is obviously um r- 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 i guess written a little while ago um Actually, last, I don't know, earlier this year, I guess, right? So um, the suggestion... Yeah, it's, that... you know, the,
1: the acceptance to production.
0: Uh, exactly. That's right. Well, that's one of the reasons why I'm not an academic. But yeah. um, But here's the key bit. The suggestion at the heart of this article is it would be even more representative if among its ranks it also had graduates from Cal State, City, University of New York. I guess you had to have that one in there. Mm-hmm. Texas A&M, because it, we're lacking this educational experience and the people who, and maybe you one of these people is even if they come from a more diverse background, by the time these institutions are done with them, they've been elitized. They've been made to think the way we do. And so they lose all their ability to actually change. So there's a different kind of representation. I might characterize that correctly. And then then what do we do? do, What do we do about that?
1: Yeah. So I think that we often you know, conceive of educational institutions in terms of uh, these kind of black boxes, right? And we think, okay, who's getting into Harvard, right? And then you have the Harvard degree, that means something, right? Um, But what is happening within these educational institutions in terms of how students are being shaped? And I think that what we don't often acknowledge is that elite institutions tend to shape students in very similar ways and that's a product of who's there, right? And uh, most of the people there are from very privileged backgrounds. And so, even if you have a student coming from a low-income background or a first-generation background, or you know, a student who comes from a very rural area or what have you, slowly they will be socialized into the norms, the expectations, the ideas of this. Very narrow way of looking at the world, and what I th- I think is missing is that there are educational institutions. You know, for me, obviously CUNY is a model, but Cal State and so on. In which what is happening within the institutions is very different in terms of whose voices are being heard, uh, what ideas are being discussed, and those institutions have something to contribute to our elite's education, right? And and so, um, actually, I was recently kind of finishing up the semester here and talking to a group of seniors. It was their last semester of college, you know, about their experience at Carolina and what they learned. And this very, like, insightful uh, uh, young woman and said to me, you know, I've had a great time here and I've learned a lot. But I really wish that in my classes, there were people that were older and had families and there were just not 18 or 19 years old. And, you know, that they weren't like her. Um, And I was like, there are such colleges and universities, not this one. But there are such places and they do contribute to the education of those students in a way that goes unrecognized. Um, the that students that emerge from those institutions know something about the world that many students at Ivy League colleges put out don't, right? Because they really haven't had those interactions. Um, and that's a really valuable skill set that I think many in the elite are missing and that it's very hard to get a at an elite institution.
0: And it means that the institutions that draw from those institutions end up being weakened too because you're drawing people with that narrow mindset. You you quote some of the work on epistemic justice. But there's this yeah. question, and I think you argue for epistemic diversity, and that, that, that diversity includes perhaps above all different experiences educationally, socially, etc., and that that's in some way, I would argue that's a more important kind of diversity, both for the production of knowledge, but in our elite, than if you like the other kinds of, I'm trying to kind of phrase kind this, of phrases. a diversity you can see more easily, right? Yeah. You quote Anthony Jack's work a little bit too, because I think it is quite easy for institutions to say, look how diverse we are. I like, well, if, I mean, back to your Supreme Court example, are you? And actually in some cases, one of your students from a low-income background white a white man from a very low income background in rural carolina might bring more epistemic diversity to a seminar room than a bunch of people who all went to private k-12 schools even if they're of different racial yeah. backgrounds right
1: yeah and that's when i feel the most complicit i think sometimes when people look at me and they think oh we're doing so great on the diversity front," you know look at her first gen like latino Woman, immigrant,
0: yeah, I'm like, yeah. No, you, that's right. You take like four boxes in one go. Yeah,
1: I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I do take all of those boxes, but in a way, I'm extremely comfortable in these elite spaces. Um, ever more comfortable in these elite spaces that certainly than I was when I got to college, and. And that affects how you see the world and how your experiences are, are structured and what you notice and don't notice. And so, you know, you have to do a lot of work to sort of get out of that bubble if you're in it. It's not, you know, you're very few people are pushing back on you to, yeah. to kind of step outside of seeing the world um, through that educational experience and so I think it is that kind of clash right when you have someone coming from a very different educational experience and for me in a way my education wasn't complete without having been at CUNY um, where I really felt like my my students pushed back on me a lot and it was you know challenging in a way that I hadn't been challenged before and and that was great, and I kind of wish meant more people who are so-called in the elite had those experiences of being challenged by uh, people who come from different educational backgrounds who haven't had this sort of, you know, elite, elite, elite experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost too smooth. I mean, these these institutions try they try to run you know in a frictionless way. Uh, smoothly oiled by what you call the sort of social ease. And I think what, one of the things we've been talking about here is the both the value of and necessity for dissonance, discomfort, friction, it was uncomfortable I mean we did this the thing at Brookings where we brought in all these high schoolers we brought in hundred high schoolers instead of take your kids to work day we said no oh, stupid to take our own kids to work let's bring something <laughs> and and an institution was like well where will they eat and what will we do and will it be noisy and like and and it, and it was it was complete it was it was crazy but it was uh-huh. fantastic um yeah. and unsettling and and so on but i I do think that's right in terms of this is difficult and the challenge I think probably also for you because as you just said you trying to tick these boxes is almost like why do i then also have to be the one introducing the friction right it's actually much easier for people like me i think there's a in some ways a different moral responsibility for for the people whom it's harder to say of well they would say that wouldn't they so i think that's a different kind of moral responsibility yeah
1: although i i tend to think about the responsibility we have in terms of what you're in a good position to do Mm -hmm. and so i think i'm you know, I'm in a good position to do certain kind of work. And, 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 th- and that's how I take comfort in, in these spaces I occupy, because I don't think it would necessarily help anyone, you know, to go back to an earlier discussion, if I turned down a job at, say, UNC or UPenn, because I thought, well, you know, like, I, I can't be complicit in this system. I can't get out of complicity. Like I. You know, I exist in the economy of higher education and uh and and the question is where, you know, given where your position and your skills and your knowledge set, how can you use that towards hopefully, you know, bending things towards a more just world? And and so that's how I think of it. Like what, you know, in my position, what can I do? And I think we should all be thinking that way.
0: How do we use the power that we have? Well, good. Thank you so much for, for joining me. I, I love that. Conversation. Was I, was, fun. I, was, I was excited for it and it lived up to my expectations at least. So Great. thank you for your work and I'd love, love to keep up, keep in touch with what you're up to.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate and share the podcast in all the usual places and send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests to dialogspod at gmail.com. That's dialogspod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.